This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And earlier this month, Prime Minister Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim said that the government is considering the introduction of schools targeted specifically for students from hardcore poor families to ensure that access and opportunities are given fairly so that these students are not left behind. Now, this has raised a lot of um, questions from various experts. Would this help break the cycle of poverty among these children or would it also further entrench that gap between students from lower versus higher income groups. So joining me to share some insights about the issues that actually exist within the community as well and what we can do um, about this is Lo Ken Ming, Director of Community Mobilisation at Teach for Malaysia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ken Ming. First, maybe I can get you to share a bit about what your role is at um, Teach for Malaysia as the Director for Community Mobilisation. Thanks, Swan. So I have been at Teach for Malaysia for close to 12 years now and I think my role at uh, Teach for Malaysia as Director of Community Mobilisation looks at platforms to um, create opportunities for the public to get involved in the work that we do. So I think typically we have programs where we train and, and send uh, young leaders to schools to teach for two years. We also work with teachers in the system. And so my role specifically is to think about how do we empower students, how do we empower families, uh, parents, community leaders, uh, volunteers at university to be um, getting involved in this uh, mission to you know provide quality education for the children that need it the most. Mm. Now we'll be diving into this this topic throughout our whole conversation today. But I, I guess I just want to briefly touch on what would what was running through your head when you heard about um, these plans to set up schools that are specifically targeted for students from poorest families. To be honest, I, I think I had two kind of uh, initial thoughts. Uh, one is uh, my mind went straight into like, oh, how would this be implemented, right? I think similar to a lot of people. But mm. I think one, uh, the other side of me was actually like quite excited about the government's uh, kind of focus and initiative to really tackle poverty at uh, at a scalable level, right? And I think this is something that, um, you know, if you are able to build long-term structures that is able to address the, the different needs of students across the country, I think that's something that actually could make uh, a big difference. Mm. Um, Now, talking about pulling students out of poverty, right? We often use um, income brackets, uh, B40, M40, T20 to sort of um, uh, categorise people, groups of people and when implementing targeted policies. But from the perspective of education, do you think this is useful? What indicators or factors should we be looking at when deciding, okay, which groups of children need a leg up when it comes to accessing education? Yeah, great question. And I think uh, when it comes to thinking about socioeconomic factors, uh, income brackets definitely is is a major factor. I think the um, the national the government had kind of indicated or raised the bar uh, national poverty line to about two thousand two hundred, and mm-hmm. that kind of like showed a very different statistic from the years before that. And I think that was helpful in in really seeing how do we look at you know which which children which families are struggling, uh, particularly with the rise of inflation. So uh, income brackets is is absolutely crucial. And I think um, when we think about hardcore poor, I think about like one, definitely income brackets, but I'm also thinking about family composition, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, single income families or, or um, single parent families or even those uh, who maybe grew up in orphanages, um, but also thinking uh, that there is an urban and rural difference. Um, so in urban poverty, I think the rate is something like 4.5%. And in rural poverty, uh, the poverty line is roughly 
roughly about 12%. And I think it's very different in terms of the kind of context and the kind of schools that are needed and how you identify them. Um, so these, I think, are, are useful factors to, to take into consideration. No? Mm. We, we Some of us mm. tend to have that tendency to um, see people from lower income brackets as very homogenous. But mm. as you've mentioned, right, we have urban poor, we have um, the rural poor communities. What what sort of, what have you seen from your work in terms of the groups of children who are struggling to access education? Definitely don't think uh, it's homogenous. And I think uh, throughout the country, Malaysia being not only very uh, diverse culturally, but also geographically. Mm. And so, I mean, different examples that I could put from across the country, I mean, bringing right here, the more obvious one is, is the urban poor. So there are a lot of students that uh, live in uh, government housing, PPR communities, and those are definitely um, a key category to the urban poor. Uh, there are also a lot that live in uh, kind of quickly develop urbanized areas. So a comparison would be like Monkiara being a very developed area, but right next to it, Sagambut, right? Mm. And educational outcomes are very, very different for students between that. Uh, but if you go a little bit further, I think um, there are a couple of categories. So if you go to East Malaysia, um, you'd have... Um, I think some of the stories back in, in the pandemic were, you know, some of the communities that were struggling the most, you know, with food and access and things like that were um, some of our fellows who were teaching in Semporna, right, which mm. is a really rural uh, and remote area um, that probably has access to a lot of tourists, but not a lot of educational opportunities. And um, comes another issue of like stateless kids in that area and undocumented children. But also I think the kind of poverty that they would experience there is quite different. Um, and another category that comes to mind is the indigenous communities. I mean, both in East Malaysia or ourselves, but also uh, in West Malaysia where um, the indigenous communities throughout, you know, particularly Pera and Pahang uh, are a focus, right? Where access to even primary school becomes something that um, they may need to take two modes of transport just to get to school. And so that's something to uh, be thinking about when we think about um, the hardcore poor. Mm. You've alluded a bit to it in terms of transportation, but um, could you share a bit more about how does poverty impact these children's access to education? Because, I mean, on paper, right, all children in Malaysia have access to primary education, but what are the gaps that you've seen? So I, I maybe would, I can't really generalize so much, but I think mm. on a personal uh, experience, I think some of us, uh, I mean, in Teach from Malaysia, we do often do community visits. And uh, early in the year, we did a visit to uh, an Orang Asli village uh, somewhere in Perak. And I think the parents were speaking a lot about, um, you know, generational access. So for them, a lot of them had dropped out of school at probably a mid to higher primary level at like 10 to 11 years old, just because there was it was too difficult to get to school, right? And that was mm. probably about 10, 15 years ago. I think that access has improved a lot, um, but it still takes a student quite a lot. So a typical student that we were speaking to would have to, from their house, probably walk about 20 to 30 minutes um, to a location where a bus would pick them up or a little van would pick them up. And that would then go to a nearby stop where a few villagers would gather and then there would be another bus to take, right? So um, you'd imagine about an hour and a half to two hour commute one way for a student getting to school. And so the chances of them affecting, you know, their uh, attendance rate or even drop out of school is extremely high, right? Let's say weather conditions and, and things like that. And I think in these areas, parents can't afford to be um, either moving closer and rely quite heavily on whatever transportation is available. 
Mm. There are cases where students are placed in boarding schools where there are mm. facilities provided to house students because their homes are a bit too far away. But what do we know about access to these facilities as well? So in Malaysia, I think uh, from a list uh, from the Ministry of Education, I think there are quite a number of boarding schools across the country, roughly about 69. So they call Skola, Brasarama, Pano. Uh, but I think the, the reason or, or kind of context to why these schools were set up is to really bring um, excellent students or high potential students from various backgrounds. You, know, you can come from a, a kind of slightly underprivileged or, or lower income background, or you can actually come from a middle to upper income background, but bringing them together, creating a conducive environment. And what we have seen uh, from, you know, notable names like SM Science Suramban or um, Malay College Kuala Kangsar or Tunku Kursia, I think you see a lot of really strong alumni and really high quality students coming out of these, uh, mm. these schools. So I think there definitely is a success point from the kind of environment uh, they create. But also just noting the differences that they were kind of catered for high potential students mm. in which as we think about um, you know students from low income backgrounds they may not necessarily fit those immediate criterias Mm. Mm. Education shouldn't only be focusing on on helping high potential students, right? It's about helping all students, regardless Absolutely. of whichever level they are. Absolutely, Absolutely. Um, taking a bigger picture look, how well do you think our education system, our policies as a whole, have addressed um, gaps in access to education for students from these hardcore poor families? Because we've heard again and again, right, from parents, <coughs> um, teachers, education advocates, policymakers themselves, they've all said that, okay, we we need to move away from what uh, many say is a race-based system now to a more needs-based system in helping students. But have are we doing enough at the moment? I think there are a lot of initiatives that exist. Um, but in, in in one perspective, I think a lot of it is is really like a band-aid solution. And mm. it's, it isn't really, um, <clears throat> I guess, a, a structural set up to really addressing hardcore poor long-term. Um, and as you think about educational opportunities, I mean, we see a lot of things where in schools, you'd have students that are on financial aid for, for food programs or even um, free textbook programs in the past. Uh, we also have a lot of NGOs working in, in poorer communities to provide you know, extra educational opportunities, exposure, um, and, and free tuition. But I think structurally, this doesn't really change the fact that, you know, for, for a kid to access uh, a high-quality school or even access high-quality education, there's a lot stacked up against them. Mm. And so the kind of support they need is not so much... Uh, sorry, I mean... To rephrase that, I think they do need a lot of these extra support, but I do feel like we need to think of it at a more systemic level, right? Um, how are the families involved? How is the community involved? How is learning contextualized to the students? Um, and so some of the policies I I feel kind of do help address that uh, kind of a more short to medium term level, but this approach to creating a school for hardcore poor is, is a step in the right path, I would say. Mm, all right. We'll go for a quick break now, Ken Bing, and when we come back, we'll talk more about this idea of creating a specific school for the hardcore poor and, and some of the concerns that you said when you when you uh, when I asked you earlier, you mentioned about the how of we're going to do this um, and we'll dive into that after a quick break. On the show with me today is Lo Ken Ming, Director of Community Mobilisation at Teach for Malaysia. We'll be right back after a few messages, so keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And on the show with me today is Lo Ken Ming, Director of Community Mobilisation at Teach for Malaysia. And he's joining me in the studio today to um, discuss the recent um, mention by the Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim, that the government is looking into the introduction of schools targeted specifically for the hardcore poor students. Um, before the break, we were sort of diving into what are the current issues that children children from families living below the poverty line, for example, what issues that they are facing in accessing education in the first place. Now, um, Ken Ming, earlier when I asked you what you thought about this move, you said you had two thoughts, right? You were excited for it. It's a step in the right direction, but you're also concerned about the how. Um, from what I've read, um, from what I've heard about this, this these plans, um, the, we don't have much details yet because it's still in consideration, um, but it's been said that this type, new type of school would be based on the framework of um, science-based secondary food, uh, and fully residential schools or the SBPs as we were talking up about before the break. Um, what can we learn and improve from that current system of SBPs to make sure that if something like this is put in place, it will help these students from these communities? Well, I think there are a couple of aspects to think. And if, if we kind of approach it from a student lens, mm. uh, I think there is a lot that is to celebrate, I think, in thinking about, um, you know, boarding schools or residential-based schools. I think a lot of the uh, physiological safety, um, you know, where their meals would come from, whether there is a, a conducive environment for them would kind of be met. Uh, and I think... The thing then to think about is, you know, how do we help students um, become independent away from their parents, right? Because I think mm. in boarding schools, that's usually a challenge, um, you know, especially if you come from a slightly different context where, you know, you've, you've grew up in a very close-knit community or maybe, you know, housing wasn't a very easy thing. So living apart from your family would be one area to consider. Um so I think over and above that, I think a lot to learn is really the kind of environments we create. So I think in a lot of boarding schools, there is there's a culture in the school, right? There's uh, extracurricular activities, things that you do, there are routines that really help build character and, and a lot of um, values among students. And I think these are really strong things to, to really take, right? Like take the good uh, and ensure that that continues in these schools. I do feel that there are some areas that we do need to um, be mindful of and specific Specifically, you know, the difference would be in catering to high potential students versus students that are, are marginalized or at risk. And mm -hmm. I think um, a couple of things that come to mind would be things like trauma-informed pedagogy. Mm -hmm. um, how do we work with students that maybe have grown up with a lot of different challenges? Maybe they've lost a parent, maybe their parents have lost a job, and they've gone through a very difficult early childhood. Uh, I think there are aspects of um, early childhood education in preparation for these schools, that's really important. And as I think about factors that influence the success of a child, it ranges anywhere from, you know, whether it's nutrition, whether it's um, psychological safety that's provided in, in homes, right, of whether parents are uh, create that environment that helps build confidence. Uh, and a crucial factor is also academic foundational literacy and, and numeracy, where a lot of children, um, especially from challenging backgrounds, struggle um, with these foundational um, aspects. And so as I think about um, what we should be learning and, and taking and considering, I'm thinking that we do need quite a tailored and catered um, mm. system, right, that 
uh, depending on on the needs of the child as they come in to these schools, the school will then have you know various different initiatives, um, whether it's you know some counseling support, whether it's uh, extra academic um, you know support for certain kids that struggle with literacy. And I think this would then um, kind of level the playing field a little bit because I think a lot of our our students um, they struggle with you know not even being at the starting line right there, mm. a couple of steps back, and so then they're measured along the same grade. And for them, there's a lot stacked against them. And so uh, we're hoping that these schools will be able to, you know, give them a level playing field to do that. Mm. But that would also require significant training for the teachers as well, right? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I think for, for teachers, um, there you'd see a lot of teachers already kind of thinking about this, especially mm-hmm. teachers who are placed in, in some of these challenging communities, maybe mm. in, in rural areas and all that. Um, but I think there is, there is a skill to be able to identify the needs of students, but also differentiate their kind of learning because it's not going to be a one-size-fit-all, right? I think if you're thinking about high-potential students that are already motivated and are thinking of going to, you know, top colleges around the world, um, you know, that may be influenced by their family background. So the mindsets aren't really something to to work too much around. Um, But I guess for students that uh, come from really challenging backgrounds, they may not have grown up with a mindset of, you know, communities or parents believing in their potential. Um, And so that's something that that teachers have to work with, right? So it's Mm. not just about getting homework done, but really like why is education important and do these kids, are these kids able to dream uh, enough, right? Mm. And I think there was a a report by McKinsey uh, in the past where uh, thinking about educational outcomes, a huge factor that influences students' success, a lot of it is is related to mindsets Mm. in how they believe. And of course, family background and socioeconomic factors um, are there as well. But a student's belief and and therefore a teacher's belief in a student makes a huge difference. And so that's something to be thinking a lot about. Mm. Because it's, I mean, it's one thing to get them to school, but if they don't want to stay there, if they don't have that interest to study, to be there, then then you're not going to get them engaged in class, right? Absolutely. And I think... I mean, there, there also recently was another thought about, you know, making sure secondary school is mandatory for yes. all, right? And I think school completion, I, I feel, is, is absolutely important because some parents, sometimes they struggle with this tension of like, you know, is my kid really doing well? Actually, the the from a hierarchy of needs, they, they need to put foot on the table so mm. some of their kids need to work, right? But I think making it mandatory, I think is an important step, but also how we do that, right? It's not just like, locking kids in school and you you have to finish but really like what are they taking out of it and I think in in some schools not all I think um, so for example a school where I taught in mm-hmm. um, back in 2012 uh, you know we had maybe 70 to 80 students completing school each year but only about 55 to 60 percent of them would get an SPM certification so mm. some of them would fail their Bahasa or Sujara which are mandatory subjects um, and so 11 years of schooling kind of end up with not having a certificate and so that's kind of a bit of a attention to have right for students like oh why am I really going to mm. school so I do feel um, you know thinking about you know, the approach of character building, competency building and thinking around um, how do we help students develop, you know, self-driven leadership in themselves, right? That um, it's not just when there's a teacher there, they're learning, but how do they develop that on their own? I think that's quite crucial. Um, So would you say then there's a need for us to change how we view what the end goal of education is? It's not just about, okay, you've finished school, you've finished education, you've gotten a certificate, that's it, but about learning something along the way as well. 
Because, I mean, more often than not, it's often about that certificate at the yeah. end. <laughs> For a lot of Asian Absolutely. families, it's about that certificate at the end. It's, it's about the A's, it's yes. about that. But it's, yeah, I think this is a, a really, uh, I guess, a, a very debatable and, and something that I think a lot of parents, I mean, me being a parent myself mm. um, with two really young toddlers, I'm thinking, you know, what is the goal and purpose of education? And I think different people see it differently. So uh, some people see it as a means to an end, right? To, you know, a successful, stable career. Um, some people see it as um, a form of self-actualization. You can actually grow your, the potential of the human mind um, through kind of lifelong learning. But I think as we think about children, and, and this is universal foundational education, right, that we want all children to be able to go to, ultimately is to create um, human capital that can successfully contribute to the economy, right, of, and successfully contribute to society. And to think about that is really thinking about um, a lot of leadership skills, critical thinking, as well as character that can really drive, uh, that students can be self-driven and lead themselves in a very changing environment. So if I think about like education in the past in how we prepared students to go to university, I feel that landscape is also changing a lot, right? And if I think about the hardcore poor or really mm. like the most marginalized, university is not really necessarily an easy target to attain. Mm. Um, but we also want to open the possibilities that actually right now, a student can do a nine-month coding course and join like a huge tech firm, right? Mm. Um, and a huge aspect to that is really thinking how are students challenging themselves and building those those lifelong learning um, aspects. So as I think about it, there's there's a competency aspect, there is a character aspect, and also I think for a lot of students from challenging backgrounds, it's really building that mindset and confidence. Uh, and I think education is, is meant to be shaping a lot of who you are just mm. from what you feel you're able to do. And I think a lot of us probably will forget, I don't know, the ad math that we've learned or the history <laughs> I know that I we've have. learned. Um, but I think what we remember a lot is is really how to think, um, how we interact with people, mm. how we socialize and how we instill values right uh, in our children. I think that's that's definitely something really important to think as an end goal versus mm. just that certificate. Mm. All right. So then bringing back this conversation to what we were talking about, about these specific schools. Now, you said you had concerns about how. Um, talk to me more about that. In, uh, I guess from the schools, uh, the implementation, I think there are various ways that mm -hmm. you, we could be implementing it. And I think a suggestion on my end, and I think is, is, is thinking, is that um, it's not just the government's responsibility of just creating these schools. I think it's, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. So it's quite a collective effort where collaboration with NGOs, with state governments, with, um, you know, different departments within the government to mm -hmm. ensure that there is a continuity, right? So it's not just getting a student into that school. How are their families supported? How are they um, updated on, you know, being invested in their child's education? I think there's a lot of research around um, how much a parent's involvement in a child's education influences their own um, longer-term success. And, and so, yeah, some of these things are, are implementation um, kind of areas. I think, you know, in terms of choosing kind of where mm. um, and, and how to set up these schools, I do feel we need kind of more local community empowerment um, to see long-lasting change. Because I think if it's going to be a government initiative where we build a building and then just mandate poor students to go in, I think over a period of time, it's going to, the ownership of that, that overall school, you know, maybe 
quite a challenge. And so how do we empower community members to take ownership? So if we're, let's say, building a school in Semporna, right? How do we bring in community leaders from the community to say, this school is for the community. How are you getting involved? How are you ensuring your children are getting involved? And it's really a community effort to be not only getting students into those schools, but ensuring that as they graduate, they you know, they graduate with with a high quality education, right? And so uh, I feel that kind of works on a more uh, longer term involving the community level. And and yeah, so I, I think those those aspects are, are things that I'm definitely thinking about. But as you said earlier, uh, we don't have too much details. Mm-hmm. And part of me is having faith that, okay, they're thinking different aspects of it through. Um, but yeah, I think involving the community is definitely one way to ensure long-term impact. Mm. Mm. Because there have been several, quite a few, I, I, I want to say, critis- not criticisms, but there have been concerns that have been raised about the potential issues that could sprout from this. And and one of it that I, one of those that I have heard is that, well, right now when we look at schools that are in um, locations that are in more rural areas, these schools are already struggling with resources, with funds. And, and these are schools that usually serve communities that are in the lower income bracket. So then mm. how do we ensure that these new schools wouldn't end up in that same state, in that mm. to that same fate where they end up being under resourced again as well. Mm. Oh, that yeah, that's a really good question, and I think I I personally feel there's no easy answer mm. um, to it because I think sometimes within uh, even within the the education system we'd see like you know we're trying to find ways to incentivize schools to do better mm. and so often you'd find that schools that do better get more resources and schools yes. that don't do better may not necessarily get the highest quality teachers or even additional resources right mm. um and so just thinking about you know where that kind of ownership lies i do feel um one aspect to this resource allocation, and, and I think about you know equi- equity versus equality. Mm. So is it about providing all schools with enough tables, right? Or is it about providing the most challenging schools with additional resources because they, they need that uh, even more, right? Mm. And it's not that every school has a science lab, but maybe the schools in, in rural areas, because they have no access to some of these things that we do, maybe they need double the amount of, of resources, right? And so I think that's a policy or even an approach that the government should be considering of how we kind of balance the, the starting points for students where I think in urban areas, if, I mean, if you ask me honestly, some of us don't necessarily need all the facilities because as we go back to our homes and things like that, there may be a lot of access and exposure that we already have. But mm. in some areas, like the kind of careers or even industry exposure um, or, or what the kid understands of the world, I think there is a lot to be thought about when we think about like rural communities. Mm. Um, mm. It goes back to how we're not all starting at the same starting point. Exactly. Mm. And then also what what do we understand to be the community's need? And I think we can only kind of reach that understanding if we're working with local leaders um, to see what the needs of kids there are. Mm. Mm. Um, to play devil's advocate mm. once again, now there are concerns that we are singling out these students then. You know, we we are pointing out that, okay, these are the all the students from lower income brackets, from families that are struggling um, socioeconomically and that we are going to end up widening that, so, that social gap between children from poorer families versus those from higher income families. I mean, do you see that as a potential concern? 
I think there's always going to be that risk. Mm. Uh, I think many years ago uh, in the Ministry of Education, they had like school ranking systems, which they tried to get rid of because mm-hmm. a lot of schools were like, oh, you're in the bottom 5% of you know um, schools in Malaysia. So I think there's always going to be that risk. Uh, but I think it's the onus is really on us to, to say like, yes, this is a school that caters to the most marginalized or, or most disadvantaged. And we're going to provide absolutely excellent quality education towards them. I feel it really lies in in how we build the culture and administrate the school, right? And so a lot of the nuances where, you know, as a school, uh, as a student comes in, maybe because they come from a more challenging background, they're not as polished the, from a discipline or behavior perspective, they may need additional support and care. But if we view that as part of the process of, you know, educating the child, then, you know, the stigma doesn't really, uh, won't really be so apparent, right? Whereas if we kind of like, oh, these are the rowdy students mm. and these are the well-behaved students, then we're not really, then that, that stigma really grows. Mm. Mm. Um, from TFM's experience, you mm. know, from the programs and initiatives that you've, d- that you've done, especially with these underserved communities, what have you seen in terms of the difference that it makes for these students when they are able to access education and able to access quality education? I think from... I mean, Teach from Malaysia, we, we look at a few aspects when we think about student outcomes. We look at um, academic success, whether it's literacy or, or their grades in school, or, or now we call it like um, school-based assessments. Uh, we also think about leadership as, as a, a crucial aspect to their their outcomes. And leadership, I think from, from our, our standpoint, it's really how do students lead their own learning, their future, and therefore then the future of the nation. And there are a lot of aspects in that, like social-emotional learning, communication, resilience. And the last aspect alongside academics and leadership is then exposure and opportunities. And this these three kind of work together to set a student up for success, hoping to, you know, alter those life trajectories. And I think in our experience, um, you know, placing fellows over the last 10 years in school teaching Mm. alongside students for two years. Um, We're currently also working on an in-service program um, with Petronas training STEM teachers uh, and a lot of community initiatives in in, um, low-cost housing areas. What we do see is that, you know, the the role modeling and having someone to walk alongside student Mm. really creates really creates that belief. And I mean, to take it back, uh, let's say to, to think about stories that we hear about, you know, Rex Riches or students succeeding, a lot of the time you would find in these stories, there's there's someone who's inspired them, someone who went the extra mile, a teacher that, you know, never gave up mm. on, on these students. And, and I think that's, you know, the, the teacher role, you know, I can't emphasize how important that is, right, in being able to inspire a student that doesn't have that many role models, you know, depending on the community they come from. Um, but what we've also seen then is, you know, you'd have a generation of students that like need to be supported. And I think we've had students that, you know, is the first tertiary graduate in their family. Um, but going to university was a whole challenge in itself because mm. the environment and, and being able to support, you know, the language and and things like that um, is also a journey, right? And so a lot of our, some of our alumni have focused on, on supporting kids in this journey, whether it's at a high school level or at a tertiary level as well. Um, so I'd kind of focus really on how do we create strong role models, um, but also how do we give students um, the practical platforms to be experimenting and learning, right? And so I think it's really moving away from this like, oh, here's all the syllabus that you need to learn versus here are platforms that you can exercise and and challenge yourself to grow. 
Mm. Do you mm. think that instead of funneling resources mm. towards setting up a new initiative mm. to help students from hardcore poor families, we should just be doing better to improve the education system as a whole? Because we've been talking about mm. rehauling our education system, restructuring it for years, right? Mm. But nothing has really come to fruition because it's no small task. Mm. It's not an easy thing to change our education system overnight. Mm. But do you think that should be the priority instead? The hard answer, I think it's it's not an or, mm. it's a kind of end. Mm. Um, so we need to increase access regardless, right? To, mm. Because we don't really... We, we may have a lot of students that maybe don't fall within the hardcore poor category that are also struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also need, you know, specific tailored approaches to be addressing like the most disadvantaged children because they, you know, they are oftentimes the ones that fall through the cracks, right? And so for us, I think we not only need to like elevate the system as a whole, but we need to create safety nets, right? Because there's no one perfect solution. I think mm. about education, it's a very complex, um, interconnected, you know, it's not just policies, it's not just teachers, it's not just curriculum, it's all of the above. And it's never um, going to be a system that we can just copy and paste from abroad either. Absolutely. I mean, if we think about, uh, I recently went to India and they have a huge um, kind of private schooling system that mm-hmm. addresses um, kids from low-income backgrounds and they've privatized a huge portion of that and and made that available for them uh, at a very low cost. And so as we think about, you know, what sort of quality education can we provide to, you know, the underprivileged or the those that are, come from low-income backgrounds, I think we really have to raise our expectations, right? And it's not just like a charity kind of thing, let's provide just minimal access, but we really need to set really high bars of expectations. Why do we need these children to succeed, right? Because ultimately they contribute to um, the country's talent as a whole. Mm. A lot for us to think about as um, regular as regular Malaysians, but a lot for policymakers to think about um, mm. as well as they really chart this course that's going to set the future of Malaysian children in education. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ken Ming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking to Lo Ken Ming, Director of Community Mobilisation at Teach for Malaysia, and we've been discussing the recent announcement by the Prime Minister about plans to introduce schools targeted specifically for students from um, hardcore poor families. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcasts on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Live and Learn BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.